Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless us with an opportunity to feed on your word. Lord, you've told us that the unfolding of your words gives light. And the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to us. And we pray, Lord, that the understanding you give us would change our simple understanding of of life and even our own bodies. And you would make us wise in a way that we can live and, and love you more. Knowing Christ, knowing the gospel, living in light of it. So we pray that your spirit would take your words and and multiply their effect. Father, I ask for help to, to declare your word today, and I ask for help for those listening that, that have good resolves, that, that want to obey. Father, I pray for those listening that, that don't know you, that your firm word today would not be the only word known about you, that your grace and truth would also be strong and clear and your fierceness against sin. So, Father, please help us in this time. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. How should Christians respond to sexual lust? How should Christians respond to sexual lust? There was a man named Thomas. He was a student. He was mocked by other students for his slowness of speech. He wasn't treated well by his family either. And at age 19, he did something against his family's wishes. He secretly joined a particular group of Christian friends that his parents didn't like. And his family so strongly objected They did everything they could to discourage his path into theology. His family so opposed Thomas and his friends, they captured Thomas, their own son. They captured him by kidnapping, and they put him in a room of stone walls and imprisoned him inside for over a year. Why? They were seeking to force him to change his mind. And stop being so interested in the theology of his friends and this group that he was trying to join. They were trying to force him to change his mind, but it got more intense because not only did they keep him in prison inside for over a year, they hired a young woman of beautiful appearance, but not of good morals, to enter his prison cell and tempt him sexually. They knew that if they could make him lose his self-control, it would ruin his ministry, career path, hopes. What did Thomas do? 19-year-old Thomas, hormones raging. Well, Thomas resisted. Thomas resisted all of the attempts by his family to sway him. He resisted all of the pressures of lust that came upon him day after day. And his family finally gave up. They allowed their son Thomas to join 
the Dominican Order of Monks. This was taking place in the Middle Ages. This man, Thomas, maybe you've heard of him. It was Thomas Aquinas. He was one of the brightest scholars of the Middle Ages. He wrote works on systematic theology that influenced Christianity for centuries after he wrote them. And as much as church history has vivid stories and displays of the victory and perils of lust, the outcomes of those who fought against it and gave in, as much as church history has fascinating things to tell us, there's a greater way to be inspired and a greater way to be made wise to the dangers of lust, and that is to listen to Jesus himself. And we have the privilege to do that this morning, to hear how Jesus would inspire us. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at four verses today that deal with Jesus speaking on sexual lust. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. Let's begin in verse 27 through verse 30, Matthew 5. Jesus says, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Amen. Jesus' words here, spoken 2,000 years ago, were shocking then. They're still shocking today for many who first encounter them. And they're still challenging today. They're challenging in every generation, in every age. Why is Jesus saying this? I mean, this is intense. Well, this is a part of a larger sermon. This is not his entire sermon. This is not even truly the main point of his entire sermon. He's giving a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where the main point of his sermon deals with God's kingdom and what kingdom citizens look like, how they live how they operate, how they think. And this is one subsection of that entire sermon that, that spans chapters 5, 6, and 7. But we are looking at a significant portion of it today. The portion we just read is a part of a larger section there in chapter 5 that deals with the law. In fact, Jesus here is giving six statements that all start the same. You have heard that it was said. 
Put your eyes back down on your scriptures for a moment. See how verse 27 says, you have heard that it was said? Now, if you were to look before that, you would find in verse 21 a similar phrase. You have heard that it was said. And if you look past our passage today and you look in verse 31, you would see it was also said. And if you look at verse 33, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And then if you look at verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And then if you look at verse 43, Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said. You see, where we are today is almost in the dead center, the middle of a section where Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said, and he's talking about the law, and then he's clearing up any misconceptions, misunderstandings, misapplications that someone would have about the law. And Jesus is so concerned with the law, we know this because a few verses earlier, Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. In other words, Jesus fills full the law. And Jesus wants his kingdom followers in this kingdom manifesto, this whole sermon, to be teachers and doers of the law. So what we're looking at today about lust is not just something for you to try to obey. It's actually something for you to try and teach to others. We know that because what Jesus said in verses 17 through 20, right there in that section, Jesus claims that he fulfills the law, and then he, he urges those listening who would be followers of him to be doers and teachers of the law. Jesus is taking aim at so many things in this section on the law, anger, lust, marriage, how we deal with enemies, whether or not we give oaths and keep our word. He's taking aim to clear up any shallow views. This is an incredible section. Before we dig into it and break it down and try to digest it, let's just pause for a moment and take a, a snapshot. What is the main idea of this section today? The main idea is this, kingdom citizens, i.e. Christians, kingdom citizens of a heavenly kingdom, those citizens display a right response towards sexual lust and that they understand it, they understand the dangers of it, and they have a serious, vigilant watchfulness over their own hearts against it for God's glory. In other words, if you want to boil all that down, kingdom citizens take lust seriously. And they know what to do about it. And this passage matters so much for us today because some of you listening right this very moment know that you struggle with lust. Sexual lust. You know, there's many types of lust, aren't there? There's money lust, a.k.a. greed. There's lust for food that gets out of control, where it becomes gluttonous. There's lust for possessions, which we usually say coveting. But often when we say the word lust, we're talking about sexual lust. That's how it's used today. And some of you right now know that you struggle intensely with sexual lust. Others of you listening might not feel like it's much of a struggle for you at the moment. Maybe it was in your past. Maybe it never was. 
Jesus has something for all of us today in this passage, whether we feel like we're struggling or not. Because remember, we're all supposed to live this out. We're all supposed to teach others. So Jesus not only wants to help you, he wants to help you be able to help others with the instruction he gives here. And if we take a few clicks back for a second away from just sexual lust itself, Jesus is is teaching us things about sin itself in this passage and things about eternity. So please don't tune out the words of Jesus already if you think, I'm not really struggling with sexual lust. Maybe the next sermon will will apply to my life. Don't think that. There's plenty of truth here about sin, eternity, and even how to help others. Um, I pray that you'll find that. So let's dig into it. Let's break it down. Uh, The structure of this passage is quite simple. The structure will be the framework that will hang the two points of the sermon on today. Here's those two points in the structure. The two organizing ideas that that we need if we're going to take sexual lust seriously, respond to it rightly, the first big idea from this passage is this. Christians take God's perspective on purity. Christians take God's perspective on purity. This is verses 27 and 28. That's where this idea is coming from. Jesus is going to give a statement of Old Testament law from the Ten Commandments. And then he's going to follow it up in verse 28 with a a corrective lens, an interpretive lens that takes the command further than most would be willing to even understand how far it goes. And Jesus is giving God's perspective on purity. And then the second large organizing idea of this passage is this. Here's the second idea. Christians battle hard against lust. Christians battle hard against lust. This is verses 29 and 30. 29 and 30. And you can see, if you look for a moment, if you put your eyes on the beginning of 29 and the beginning of 30, you see how it starts with the word if? There's two if statements. And the verses, if you're not paying close attention, almost sound identical from start to finish. Jesus gives two nearly identical phrases in 29 and 30, and they have repetition for emphasis, and they give us an intense argumentation for obedience. So our hope today is to unpack these two ideas, that we, we want God's perspective, that Christians have God's perspective on purity, and that Christians then battle hard against lust. Let's pray that the Lord would help us as we walk through. So let's begin. This first idea, Christians take God's perspective on purity. It's interesting when Jesus begins his teaching on sexuality, he says there in verse 27, the first three words are super important. Don't skip over them. 27, first three words. You have heard. Jesus knows that you've already heard something about sexuality from somewhere. He knows that the original hearers had. He knows that you have. You don't live in a vacuum. Jesus knows that you have heard things 
I wonder today, what do the average ears hear today about sexuality? Where, where do your ears learn a right and proper sexual ethic? Is it in a school system? Is it from friends, parents? Is it from the media? Is it from entertainment? Well, here's one thing I know about you. I might not know what your sexual ethic is, whoever you are, but I do know this about you. Your ears have heard something already about human sexuality, and Jesus knows that too. That's why he begins his teaching with what they think they already know, and he's going to take it further and correct it. In fact, in this section, if we're going to have God's perspective on purity— then we're going to need to have God's perspective, not the culture's. We're going to need to have God's perspective, not just the religious culture of the day. We're going to need to have God's perspective, not just our own perspective. We're going to need God's perspective. So we can take those one at a time. What is the culture's perspective on sexuality? Well, the culture moves one way about lust but Jesus moves the other way when he instructs on lust. Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said, and I know that you have heard that what is said in the culture is constantly changing. Ask anyone older than you, hey, how has the culture shifted on sexual morality? And they would be able to tell you. It's rapidly changing every couple of years, every five years, certainly every 10 years. Our culture has an ever-changing view of sex, a view of what constitutes lust and what's appropriate. Even in our advertising, you know this, the salacious and perverse methods of advertisement today are getting more and more intense in their sexual content for consumers to devour. Our culture says things like, you can look, but don't touch. Our culture says things like, you can look, but don't say something about someone else's sexuality. Jesus has something to say, though, about even how you look at another person. Our culture says, consent is all that matters. Our culture says, your private life, what you want to look at, what you want to think about, what you want to fantasize about, That's your private life. That's one of your rights. Nobody can mess with your privacy. Our culture says that Christianity and the things Jesus would teach is actually harmful. Do you remember the shootings that just happened a few weeks ago in Atlanta? The Atlanta area? The New York Times reported that Robert Aaron Long, the suspect in the Atlanta massacres that left eight people dead, told the police upon his arrest they thought this was purely a crime against some other ethnicity. Is this an Asian hate crime? And we still don't know all of his motives. But here's what the killer, Robert, Robert Aaron Long, said to the police when he was arrested. He said, quote, I have a sexual addiction. And he explained he was trying to rid himself of that sexual addiction by taking out those objects of his lust, human beings. 
And the New York Times reported on this, and they followed up with an associate professor of religious studies at Skidmore College, Dr. Onishi, and he said, yes, the evangelical culture that the killer was raised in gave him bad teaching. He said, quote, this is in the New York Times, the evangelical culture, quote, teaches women to hate their bodies as the source of temptation, and it teaches men to hate their minds, which lead them into lust. Our culture pins Jesus' words against himself to try to indict Jesus that he doesn't know what he's talking about. That Christian teaching against lust and the abuses of lust, they're not true. They're actually psychologically harmful to the body image of men and women and to the mental health of men and women. We know that we can't look to culture for the right perspective on purity. But as this passage takes us, this passage takes us into the religious culture to clear up some misconceptions. So not only is it our culture that we can't look to for the standard of purity, in one sense we can't just look to our religious culture. That doesn't mean that our religious culture and what we say and do in our churches gets it all wrong. It just means we have to constantly watch what's said and talked about and seen as appropriate or okay in church life. Does that match up with what Jesus says? You see, Jesus says here in verse 27, here's how we know he's talking about the religious culture. He says there in verse 27, you can see it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So he's grabbing one of the Ten Commandments, which all the Jews listening to this Sermon on the Mount would have known. This was just basic 101 knowledge in the religious community. Yes, you don't commit adultery. That's wrong. But Jesus is about to take it further, which is why he says what he says in verse 28. Before we read verse 28, let me just pause and say, how accurate in holiness and purity do you believe that church, even your church family or other churches, are when it comes to matching up their habits with what Jesus says? I don't, I don't know the stats in our church, so please, when I say this stat, I'm not saying this is the statistic within Park Hills Baptist Church. I'm not saying that, but here's what I feel led to tell you. Let me tell you a few stats, just three, that are stats on pornography in church life. This comes from the Covenant Eyes website. It's a wonderful website that helps mitigate and, and help others in sexual challenges and lust. The Covenant Eyes website, they have some carefully researched and referenced figures. Here's what sadly is said. One in five youth pastors and one in, five, one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis. One in five youth pastors one in seven senior pastors. 
that equates to about 50,000 pastors in the United States, if you start doing the math of how many churches there are, how many pastors. Sixty-four percent is the second stat. Sixty-four percent of Christian men and 15 percent of Christian women say they watch porn one time at least per month. The third stat. Exposure to digital pornography happens in the pre-teenage years, before someone's ever a teenager. And 71% of teenagers hide their online behavior from their parents. Do we want to appear holy or, or be holy as a church? Brothers and sisters, we must pay close attention to what Jesus says here in verse 28. Because Jesus knows there's things you've heard in your religious upbringing or religious cultures. Just like his original hearers here heard of the Ten Commandments. Just like you've probably heard, yeah, sex outside of marriage is sinful. It's sinful to commit adultery, and you've likely heard those things. Have you taken to heart what Jesus would say? Have you taken to heart that your perspective on purity can't merely be what your buddy in church thinks about it. It has to be what Jesus thinks about it. It can't even be your own perspective on purity where you compare yourself to your own past. I used to do this or I used to be involved with that, but now I'm not, so now I'm pure. Where do we go to get the right perspective on purity? It's right here in verse 28. 28 is the core of this passage. 28, verse 28 tells us God's standard, God's perspective on lust, on purity. So pay careful attention here to verse 28. This is what we're after, by the way. Not what the culture says, not merely what rumbles in churches from time to time. These are the words of Jesus. This is a direct quote. Take his perspective. I'm begging you, take his words. Let's all put our eyes on verse 28. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone, let that sink in, everyone. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're a a man or a woman, if you're married or if you're unmarried. Everyone. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the standard. That's the standard of purity. And what Jesus says here is so worthy of our meditation. If we gaze at this verse and and let it sink in and, and meditate on it, we begin to see God's perspective, his standard. What else could we say about God's perspective on purity just from this one verse? Well, we could say that it's not just looking at another person that somehow makes you sinful. Notice Jesus didn't just say, if you look at a person, you've committed adultery. He says, 
looking with lustful intent. It's a specific type of looking. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, but I know that some homes teach you can't even look at a a woman or man that walks by. The moment you just look at them or notice them going by, you've somehow sinned, and there's, there's false guilt in some homes, in some churches, some upbringings. Jesus doesn't just say, if you happen to notice somebody, you're already guilty. He says there's a certain type of looking, and it says, looking with lustful intent. What is that? What is lustful intent? Well, lustful intent is the motive and the purpose and the intention to indulge in a lust. And by lust, I just mean desire. We know from the book of James, chapter 1, that uh, God tells us what lust is. It's a desire. It's a desire from within us, our own heart. And our desire can conceive and give birth to sin. Here's a way we might illustrate this. Everybody knows what a donut is. Everybody knows what a a bakery pastry is, right? Imagine you're walking down a street, and you see a wonderful French bakery, and you can see through the window, and there's all these wonderful pastries and and donuts and different things. Some of them are glazed, some are sprinkles, some are bear claws. There's all, and you're you're hungry, and you walk by and you you notice that. And because you didn't eat breakfast that morning, you notice it more than other mornings, and all of a sudden you're looking. Your desire for food that's just innate in you, all of a sudden that desire for food, that, oh, I, I know that that is food, okay, you're aware. All of a sudden that desire is infused with a desire where you want that and you have to have that and it's a selfish desire. That has to be for me right now. I'm imagining myself consuming that. That's what lust is. It's a specific type of desire that's inordinate. The wrong time, the right, the wrong way, the wrong object that's not yours, selfish motives. Jesus knows that the purpose of our bodies is to look at things. We're made in his image. We can see. We can see color and texture. But Jesus also knows we can see things in a way where our desire is hijacked with our own lustful desires. That's where the sin comes in. That's where the wrong comes in. And what we can see from God's perspective here is that lustful intent is something that comes from the heart. Because did you notice there in verse 28, when lustful intent happens, that's sexual lust, looking at another human being, The adultery that's committed there is is at the heart level. So Jesus is getting beyond the surface of the command so that nobody could just think, oh, if I haven't been in a bedroom with someone else, I guess I've never committed adultery. No, Jesus is helping them see their own heart is the place adultery first takes place, even if it never grows to something more outward on a physical bed somewhere. We know that Jesus is concerned about the heart and that God's perspective about lust deals with the heart because 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us the Lord doesn't see as man sees. The Lord looks upon the heart. 
We know the heart is important because of later in this gospel, in the, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, out of the heart, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, greed, wickedness, adultery, sexual immorality. It comes out of the heart. We know from Proverbs 4.23 that the heart is the wellspring of all of life. The springs of life flow from the heart. All the choices you're making in life, all of your choices are flowing from your heart. That's why Jesus is taking aim at the heart for where our standard and perspective of purity needs to take aim. We need to think about our hearts not so much downstream and our own perspective of if we've sinned or not. Jesus is pulling that perspective all the way back and saying, examine whether or not you're sinning in your heart. Because some of us have our own standard of, well, if I didn't go to this such and such place in town and spend money there, or if I didn't meet up with this person and and physically do something with them, then I'm not that bad. Others of us have a standard, well, well, if I didn't look at something explicit digitally, I'm not that bad. Some of us think, well, I didn't stare at that person out in public very long and nobody knew about it. It's not that bad. So many people have different standards for what purity is. Take Jesus's standard here. God's perspective on purity is that when you look at another with lustful intent, you're committing adultery in your heart. Aren't you thankful that in God's kindness, you're not maimed and hurt more often for lust? I mean, this may sound silly, but imagine if every time someone began to lust with their eyes sexually, they started to have this permanent purple eye crud. You know the eye crud when you're waking up in the mornings and stuff, you get crud in your eye. Imagine if in God's wisdom, he decided when you lust sexually at someone else, you're going to have permanent purple eye crud that's going to keep building it up and you can only remove it, you know, once a month. It'd be pretty easy to tell who's lusting, wouldn't it? Or imagine if God decided that your electronic devices or your TV screen or the steering wheel of your car, wherever you are when you're lusting, if that suddenly became scalding hot and caught fire in the place where you are. God could have done hundreds of different things to immediately expose lust the very moment it happens in our hearts. But in his wisdom, he didn't do that. But he does tell us how we can spot lust, and he does tell us how to fight against it. Jesus knows that perhaps our hearts sin so often in so many ways, if there were to be this immediate sudden visible thing like permanent purple eye crud. None of us would even make it to work. None of us would be able to get through the work day. None of us would be able to get our groceries. None of us would be able to get through that show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever we're streaming. This passage has a high standard. Jesus is teaching us that sin occurs at the level of the heart when it's lustful intention. 
we're being taught here that touching another person with the mind, even if one's hands never grab or embrace them, that touching and groping with the mind is adultery in the inner person. It's just as disgusting before the Lord. It's just as filthy and unrighteous before the Lord when it's happening in your heart, even before it manifests in other outward ways. Bible scholar D.A. Carson said a helpful quote. He said, this passage here, this is not a prohibition of the normal attraction that exists between men and women, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours, which in imagination attacks and rapes and mentally contemplates and commits adultery. If you were to find out today that a person in your own family committed physical adultery, Think how devastating that would be within your family. Some of you don't have to imagine. You know the pain. You know the abuse of someone lusting after you and harming you. That same aversion we have to hearing the news that the fruit of adultery in the heart came to fruition is the same kind of aversion we need to have when we hear about the root of adultery being okay in someone's heart. Because the fruits can happen at many times in many different ways. You know this from scripture, don't you? Genesis, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Genesis 39. You know the passage John read for us earlier in the service, David and Bathsheba. Two men who were used by God. Why did one of them escape opportunities for lust and sexual lust and the other one gave in? Well, David, when he looked at Bathsheba from that rooftop, when did the adultery first start to occur? Was it when he brought her into his own chamber where he lived? No. The adultery first started to occur in his heart. So even when he inquires and finds out, that's another man's wife, that's not your wife, well, he had already been committing adultery in his heart. He had already taken steps toward adultery, already been sinning. He did not have God's perspective on his mind and heart that moment. He was lusting. But Joseph in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife was actually lusting after Joseph, tempting him. Why was he able to resist? Do you remember what he says to her? He says, your master has put me in control and mastery over everything except you. You are his wife. And then he says a wonderful statement. He says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Not just sin against your husband or sin against the future spouse I may have or just sin against you. It's, he had a perspective, I'm, I'm about to sin against God if I go this direction. Can you see how he had a godly perspective that rescripted his heart. He had a godly standard of purity. We have to be careful, brothers and sisters, because lust in the heart is so small, it's so subtle. It just takes a few seconds to commit adultery in the heart. The amount of time I just paused between sentences is all it takes to commit adultery in the heart. 
our eyes can cause us small looks that have major and big sins. In fact, J.C. Ryle, who wrote a book called Holiness, talks about how little things can be so deceitful. Little sins, little looks. And he says, quote, sin is deceitful. This is a point of serious importance. We don't give it the attention it deserves. You may see the deceitfulness and the astonishing proneness of men and women to regard sin as less sinful and dangerous than it really is in the sight of God. And in their readiness to extenuate it, make excuses for it, and minimize its guilt. If you think it sounds harsh or too strict or strange that God would tell you just the smallest of looks of lust with your eyes to another human being is adultery, then beware that your standard of purity needs to match up with the Lord's. Which one of us can stand before God in his holiness when this is the standard? This is one of the reasons we praise God for the gospel. This is why we praise God that he sent Christ to be a sinless, pure, unblemished substitute in our place. Because we're all impure before the Lord. We're all impure. We've all been adulterers of the heart. And all kinds of other sins from the heart. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, with just a few looks that turned into lustful looks, we've reached out in our lust, our desire to let our desire be what we listen to instead of God's perspective. And just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we've all sinned. And just like you may think a little bit of looking is not so bad, to God it is. Because God's always looking at the heart. All of our hearts are in rebellion against him. But praise be to God that he sent Jesus to die on the cross and pour out his purity as a sacrifice that would cover anyone who would look to Christ and look at him and be united with him by faith, trusting that he really did die in their place. And God raised him from the dead. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Jesus is risen. He's alive. He's reigning. He offers forgiveness, total cleansing to any who would know themselves to be an adulterer of heart. In fact, the gospel tells us in the book of Titus, we're told the gospel in verses 3 to 7, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus has a firm standard of holiness that is perfect. And we have transgressed his law, but God provides redemption and grace for any who would look to him for their cleansing. So what do we do? What do we do if we want to be cleansed? We, we look to Christ, but, but is that it? We look to him and we, we just kind of hope life will go okay? Well, no, we keep listening to him. The same way we become a Christian is the same way we continue as a Christian. Repentance, turning away from sin, faith, looking to him, trusting what he said, striving to obey by, by his empowerment. Only with faith in the gospel, with a changed and renewed heart, can you rightly battle your lust. You don't battle it and clean yourself up and then come to Jesus to be saved. You, you receive his salvation and cleansing, and out of that, that's the fuel and motivation to then start fighting. God made you in his image to reflect him and reflect his character, but you can't do that apart from, from him striving to rid you of more and more sin and and progress your sanctification so you can have an even brighter and brighter radiance of his character in your life. Let's close our time today with a few strategies, just a few. We're not going to go deep into specifics here. Think of these more as places to begin the conversation if you want to battle lust. I want to encourage you to take uh, these next few things that are going to be said and take them to someone else and begin talking with another Christian about how you can battle lust. We'll close on, on point two today. That is Christians battle hard against lust. If we know Christ, here's what we do about it. Let's read these verses and then close with a few points on them. Jesus says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here is a call from Jesus to take drastic measures, to battle hard. We don't hide sin or flirt with sin or pamper it or or feed it or excuse it. We deal intensely against it. We hate it, we uproot it, we dig it out. We put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Colossians 3.5 says. We mortify sin, as Romans 8.13 tells us, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So is this literal language? Is one of the first ways we start battling against sin to literally start cutting things off physically from our body? It reminds me of of a movie I saw when I was in college of a guy who was out hiking in Utah and he fell into a canyon with boulders and his arm got pinned between the wall of the canyon and a boulder and he couldn't get free. And this movie was about how the 127 hours it took him to get free. He had to calculate the cost. Do I cut off my arm with a pocket knife that I have to save myself 
or do I just stay here and hope somebody finds me? He went out there by himself. He didn't tell anybody where he was. He was hours and hours away from anyone. He didn't have any food. He didn't have any water. He knew he's not going to make it very long at all. He counted the cost. Should I cut off this, this arm and be free? Is my life worth enough to cut this off? Is that what Jesus is getting at here when he says, tear out an eye and cut off a hand? Just so that we're not confused, before we get to these steps of how to battle, no, no. He's not saying self-harm is okay. This is hyperbole here to make a point. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, take the, the log out of your own eye. He's not talking about a literal log. We know this is hyperbole here. It's not self-mutilation because the loss of the right eye or the right hand still leaves the left side to sin. Or if one were to become blind, they could still remember images and lust after things that they remember. And more than that, we know that this is not literally cutting off self-mutilation because the text itself in verse 28, Jesus already told us the, the source, the locale of where the adultery takes place. It's, it's in the heart. Everything else is downstream from that. Eyes, hands, everything else. So what is Jesus doing with these two if statements? Jesus is showing us here, what if the eye is the cause? Imagine for a moment it's not the heart. Imagine it, it really is the eye. Here's what you would do about it. Jesus is saying, imagine if it really was the hand, that the heart is not the cause. Because notice he says there in those verses, if your hand causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin. But he's already made clear that's not the cause. So we know he's giving an example. So we know this is not literal, but these are the principles of how we seek for not just behavior modification, but heart change. We go after the cause. Jesus tells us to go, how to go after the cause. So let's close with some principles. Here's how you could battle. Here's how you could start a conversation with someone else, another Christian, pastor, trusted friend, a parent to help you. A few things to jot down. Number one, if you're going to battle hard against lust, it's a heart battle that involves hope and grace. It's a heart battle that involves hope and grace. We know that because Jesus says verses 29 and 30. He could have stopped at verse 28 and said, you're an adulterer of heart, and then he could have given no instruction of what to do about it. So the very fact that Jesus even gives us verses 29 and 30 proves here's hope and grace. There's something you can do to battle lust. This is instruction that's occurring after we know ourselves to be sinners. This is, this is grace. As Proverbs 20 verse 9 tells us, who can say I have made myself clean? I am free from sin. We need Jesus' instruction. This is grace here. This is gracious instruction. So if we're going to battle hard, it's a heart battle that involves hope and grace. Secondly, it's a heart battle that has to involve personal responsibility. A heart battle that involves personal responsibility. We know this because of what Jesus says, your right eye or your right hand causes you to sin. He's not placing the blame outside of you on someone else of what they wear or lack of clothing they're not wearing or what opportunities they give you. He's placing primary blame and responsibility, primary 
on the one who's doing the sin of a lustful heart. Not that no one else has any blame or responsibility if they're sinning. But Jesus is showing us this is a heart battle. It's the second principle, a heart battle that involves taking personal responsibility, not making excuses that, well, it's, it's something else going on in, in my life or my workplace or my schedule that's, that's causing me to lust. No, it's if you know the cause, which is your heart, and Jesus says your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, you can hear how Jesus is making sure responsibility is in the one doing the lusting. That's how you start the battle. Take personal responsibility for your lack of self-control, your sin. A third principle here is that this is a heart battle that involves discomfort, pain, and even suffering. We know that because Jesus uses the language of tear it out, tear out the eye, or pluck out the eye, or cut off the hand. The cause has to be surgically aimed at. You know how in scriptures the heart is surgically cut? It's cut by the word of the Lord. As in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart when they heard God's word. And in the scriptures, our hearts are undergoing a lot of pain and discomfort often when we have to confess something. So perhaps confession of your sin to another believer, as James 5 tells us, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. If you've ever wondered, how can I make my heart uncomfortable with its sin? What would be painful to me at the heart level? What would be painful is if you have to tell those you love whom you're in covenant with, i.e. your pastors, church friends. This doesn't mean you have to stand up in front of the whole church right away the moment you had a a lustful look when you were out walking or driving your car, but it does mean if you want to fight and battle sin, if you know you've looked at something impure online or with your devices, if you know you've gone somewhere or done something with someone impure, or if you know you're, you're looking in an impure way, part of the uncomfortable nature of doing battle against that lustful look is uncomfortably having to tell someone else about your sin, letting someone else ask you questions about your sin. A fourth principle. This is a heart battle that involves a decisive plan of action. Notice Jesus says here, once the eye or the hand has been plucked out or or cut, it needs to be what? Thrown away. So it's not just, I'm going to tell somebody something and, okay, that's kind of messy. I've had to tell them about my sin. It's, there has to be something beyond that tearing and cutting of the heart. There has to be a next step, and that is getting away from you, putting it away, putting that in the trash. The original word here, actually in the Greek, is throw away is actually to throw out a fishing net. Just like they would throw that away from their person and it would spread out and start to sink down in the water below sight. That's what we're to do with with sin once it's exposed. Get rid of it. What things can you take away from your heart that your heart latches onto? Is it certain places you go online, certain places you look at another person's body, you train your eyes to look at them there? 
How can you get rid of that? Begin the conversation there. But this all means you have to have a plan of action. And this is where you want to talk to another brother or sister. You have a plan. You don't just cut and tear, but you have plans. How can I throw away, decisively separate myself from what is happening? A fifth principle here. This is a heart battle that involves an active faith. An active faith. Did you notice how Jesus said in in verses 29 and 30, it's better if you lose one of your members than that, that you go to hell? Jesus is making an argument of what's better. How could it seem better to miss out on gratifying sexual lust, Jesus? Well, he's making an argument it's better because he's making an eternal argument. This requires active faith to believe the promises of God are better. Psalm 119, verse 11, how can a young person keep their way pure? By guarding it according to the Lord's word. Galatians 3, 5, does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you, and by the way, it's a miracle if you can fight and sever lust before it causes adultery in the heart. The moment you feel that tap on your shoulder, that temptation, it's a miracle to turn away from that in faith. But we know from Galatians 3.5, he supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you like that, fighting lust. It's a miracle. By the spirit, by hearing with faith. That's how you fight. It's not a clench your fist, self-willed, self-effort. It's an effort of faith where you rely on his promises for what's better. You don't play the game in your mind. Would this really make me feel good in this moment? Sin does have a measure of pleasure in it. Hebrews 11 tells us that. Tells us that Moses, by faith, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. And he grew up refusing to indulge in the pleasures of of sin in Egypt because he was, by faith, looking to a greater reward. It says he escaped the fleeting pleasures of sin. So by faith, we think about the pleasure this sin could offer me versus the long-term pleasure of obeying Christ, knowing him more. Jesus already said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Part of the pleasure of battling lust and growing in triumph and growing in greater and greater victory over lust is that you see more and more of God. You walk closer and closer with him. And the sixth and final principle that would be wonderful to begin a conversation with a trusted Christian brother or sister with that you know is this is a heart battle that involves an eternal view. We see that because Jesus says it's better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. You have to battle against lust with an eternal big picture view of eternity not just what's right for your career or only your marriage in the moment. It's eternal view. Jesus is warning us that hell is threatened for those who don't drastically fight against the sin of sexual lust. We know from Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. Nothing unclean. That means your heart must be cleansed, changed by Christ. 
So I pray that as you seek to battle lust, you would do it with a reliance upon Christ, that he would be at the center of your focus as you battle. If you focus on him, you'll battle with hope and grace. If you're focusing on him, you'll be able to take personal responsibility for your sin because you know that you and Christ are united and he can cleanse you from what you've done wrong. Your heart battle of discomfort and pain, you'll have motivation to get through the discomfort and pain because you're trusting Jesus' instruction here that it is a painful fight. It'll be a heart battle where there's a, a plan and a resolve. You'll have steps to not just make your life messy and not know what to do, but you'll be able to rid yourself and, and throw away the mess. And it'll be a heart battle where you have an eternal view and an active faith in his promises. If all these components are part of your heart battle, you can trust the words of Christ here that this is the path to fighting sexual lust. So today, I pray that you and I, all of us, would take God's perspective on purity and battle hard against lust and do as John Owen said. He's a man who lived in the 1600s. We'll close with this quote from John Owen. He said, Awake, awake all of you. Awake all of you in whose hearts is anything of the ways of God. Would you not dishonor God and his gospel? Would you not scandalize the saints and ways of God? Would you not wound your conscience and endanger your souls? Would you not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the author of all your comforts? Would you keep your garments undefiled and escape the temptations and pollutions of the days wherein we live? Would you be preserved from the number of apostates in the later days? Awaken, awaken to the consideration of this cursed enemy, lust, sexual lust. Look to Christ. Jesus redeems all those who turn from their sin, turn from looking at created things, and look to the uncreated thing, Jesus himself, the uncreated one. Pray that God would put your eyes on him. Pray that God would give you his perspective of purity and help you to fight lust. Praise God that he gives us the enablement of his spirit to do this and that he forgives us and cleanses us and helps us fight better and better all the way until our eternal home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.